Hello, everybody. Hello. <laughs> yeah. All right. If you were here last time, then you know why I have to start with a picture of my kid. Remember? I was at a conference once, and a Twitterer said, how come all these geeks are putting pictures of their kids in their presentations? Are they trying to prove they're not virgins? <laughs> Bastards. Well, <clears throat> but because I'm a parent, I'm also a student of Dr. Seuss. And Dr. Seuss accidentally summed up exactly what it's like to be an entrepreneur and um, how I feel about this conference and what it's for and why I love it. At the fork of a road in the Vale of Vavode, five foot-weary salesmen have laid down their load. All day they've raced around at, in the heat at top speeds, unsuccessfully trying to sell Zizerzoof seeds, which nobody wants because nobody needs. Sound familiar? Tomorrow will come, they'll go back to their chore, they'll start on the road Zizerzoofing once more, but tonight they've forgotten their feet are so sore, and that's what the wonderful nighttime is for. That's how I feel most of the time anyway, just crazed and uh, exhausted, trying to get people to buy stuff. But um, what I feel is business of software is the time to stop zizzerzoofing for just a little bit and get your head out of email and tickets and the terminal and TextMate and all that. And just relax for a little bit and get inspired. And look around, there's 350 of your peers here that never happens. Everyone here is doing something. That's cool. I've made friends here that uh, I've kept for years. I think the hallway talk here is often better than the speakers, and a lot of people, I think, agree. That's what makes this conference so amazing, actually. So I implore you to use that. And for the speakers, of course, inspiration and ideas. I know I, was lit I literally filled up one of these uh, pages of ideas for myself just listening to the nameless first speaker. Um, and I hope to give you some ideas, too. And in particular, I think that for most of you, the way you're approaching metrics and optimization in your company is wrong. And the reason it's wrong is that the tools you're using tell you wrong things. And much of the things you read on the internet is wrong. But I have an education in statistics. And in the past 15 years, I've started four profitable tech startups. And in particular, right now, I'm running WordPress Engine, where we've made millions of dollars in the last two years based on my perspective of data and my techniques on optimizations. And so I want to show you all of those things, too, so you can use exactly those things to transform your business as well. So let's just get started. Three statisticians are in a forest hunting deer with a bow and arrow. And they see it, one. And so the first statistician aims and shoots and misses left. And the second one aims and shoots and misses right. And the third one says, we got it! <laughs> so it doesn't work for that, but actually it does work. That exact technique works in many cases. There's this neat study made by a guy named Jack Trainer, and if you're a Wall Street person, then you've probably heard of the Trainer Ratio, and that's the same guy. So what he'd do it, uh, in his uh, 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 university classes, he'd put a jar of jelly beans on the desk and ask people to estimate how many jelly beans there are. And they'd write them down and pass the slips forward and they'd look at it. And the first thing that you learn is that people are crap at guessing about jelly beans. In this particular real example, the, the lowest one was 250, the highest was 4100. 
the real amount of jelly beans in this example was about 1,100. And on average, an individual guess was 67% off. In other words, just everywhere crap. But here's the interesting thing. If you averaged the numbers on all the slips of paper, the average was almost identical with the truth. In fact, the average was only 3% off, better than all but one guess by his student. So it's kind of the statistician thing. And so this phenomenon is called the wisdom of the crowd. And it's neat, and it basically means that the errors cancel out in a group, right? And you can get to the truth. And how powerful is this? You start thinking, wait a minute, so I can use user voice to try to select features for my product. And I can use AdWords and A-B testing to determine the best marketing messages for my product. Um, Right? And I can, I can use crowdsourcing to get design and UX and uh, assistance and uh, ideas and all this. Like, oh my god, there's so many tools, especially today, to take advantage of this. Except that this doesn't work a lot of the time. For example, in the UK, they did this um, project over a year called Laugh Lab, where they tried to find what is the funniest joke in the English language. And so there was tens of thousands of jokes and millions of votes. And do you want to hear what the funniest joke is? I'm going to read it just to make sure I get it exactly right. This is the funniest joke. Two hunters are out in the woods when one of them collapses. He doesn't seem to be breathing and his eyes are glazed. The other guy whips out his phone and calls emergency services. You can tell this is the UK, by the way. In the US, it would just say 911, but in the UK, it's emergency services, right? That's not part of the joke. All right. He gasps, my friend is dead. I don't know what to do. The operator says, calm down, I can help. First, let's make sure he's really dead. There's a silence, and then a shot is heard. Back on the phone, the guy says, OK, now what? <laughs> it's pretty good. It's a pretty good joke, pretty good joke. Best joke you've ever heard, anybody? Best? Top 10? Not even top 10. It's the funniest joke. So it's not bad, but the wisdom of the crowns did not produce the funniest joke. And that's interesting, because it did produce the correct amount of jelly beans. And so the difference is, uh, or the way to understand the difference, it, to me, a good example would be ordering pizza for a crowd like this. And I like pepperoni and olives, but then this person doesn't like olives, and then there's a vegetarian, so we can't have pepperoni, and then some with lactose intolerance, so we're going to need soy cheese, but they can't eat soy. So by the time we're done, it's some kind of plain, horrible pizza that nobody likes. That nobody likes. It's nobody's, not even close to favorite pizza. So when it comes to matters of things like style and perspective and um, creative work, we find that the wisdom of the crowds does exactly the opposite. It cuts away the interesting edges, leaving you with something bad. And so that's how I would kind of summarize this particular technique, that when there is a single, objective, correct answer, then this can be a useful tool for zeroing in on what that might be. But when it's creative, when it's style, when it's perspective, then I feel like it cuts it away. And in fact, it's interesting. It's not just that it doesn't find the right answer. It actively finds a bad answer. It des it's destructive. It's worse than almost any other choice you could make when it's something that's creative. And that's an, this is an important point, because a lot of times, with metrics and optimization techniques, stuff like this, we think, well, I'll just pick. I'll use this technique, and, I'll, and whatever it comes up with, I'll pick. It may or may not be statistically significantly better or whatever, but it's better than what I could think of. I'll, I might as well pick it. And this is a good example of why I might as well pick it actually could lead you to a worse decision. So it's not good enough to say, I might as well pick it. There has to be something systematic about it. 
And in particular, this is true of A-B tests, where often you don't see any particular difference and you say, well, screw it, I'll pick the one I like, or screw it, it's beating a B is beating A by a little, so I'll pick it. This is really destructive, and actually, I want to get into A-B testing more, because obviously this is, in, in a way, the primary way that we do optimization for many metrics in our companies, right? Like getting page views and conversions and all kinds of important things. So here's a real A-B test done with Google Website Optimizer, which I think is no longer in existence, but there's many similar things. This comes from a company in Austin called Sparefoot, which I'll emphasize is a really smart company that's extremely metrics-driven, and they constantly drive their revenues up and their costs down and all that kind of stuff, and they're awesome at this. And this is one of their A-B tests. And this is all the good things about A-B tests. It's very clear that orange is being bl beating blue consistently with a nice thick margin there. It's a lot of N, right? 24,000 uh, visits, that's a lot. So, so it's not like they've, a, there's no problem here with it's only 16 visits, right? And Google says 85% chance to beat, which is that particular tool's way of saying there's an 85% chance that indeed that difference is systematic and real and not just due to chance which sounds like a lot, so 85% is a good, good bet. Except this is not actually an A-B test. This is an A-A test. This is a test of a page literally against itself. And yet I'm sure everyone in here was ready to pick orange and think that we learned something about whatever difference it was that that one had. So it's important now for me to explain exactly why this is not a real, or exactly why this data is not conclusive, because it sure looks that way, so that you can be similarly not fooled, not only by A-B tests in particular, but in general about this kind of stuff. So I want to show you exactly why. And I'm going to do it with a, a drug testing example, because that's fun. So suppose that I'm an athletic director of a race with 105 athletes, and I suspect some of them are juicing, some of them are taking steroids, and that's not cool. So I'm going to test them. And uh, the truth is that of the 105 athletes, the truth that you guys know is that five of them are, in fact, juicing. I don't know that, but this will help us understand what's, what happens. And I have a test that I know to be 95% accurate. Screw 85, how about 95%? Even better. So what actually happens when we test uh, the athletes? Well, first of all, of the, peop of the 100 who are clean, Obviously, the test will be, again, accurate in 95% of the cases, so about 95, 95 of them will show clean. And of course, five of them will incorrectly be showing juicing, right, because there's 5% error, so there they are. And, on, and then for the five that are juicing, uh, probably, you know, 95% chance is pretty good, so probably it'll correctly identify those and none there. Of course, in reality, maybe it's an extra one over here, an extra one over there, and so on, but it'll be roughly like this, probably. Now, we know this, but as the athletic director, I don't know this. This is all I know. The 10 athletes have been identified as juicing, and my test is 95% accurate, which I trust. So throw them out. Except half of them aren't. With a test that's, quote, quote nominally 95% accurate, half of them are not juicing. Half. And the reason is that the thing I'm measuring, the thing I'm trying to detect, is rare. And when the thing I'm trying to detect is rare, then the, the normal error from the vast majority will often overwhelm the real positives. That, that's what's happened here. And this is not a, uh, uh, um, th this example is actually incredibly relevant to this because this is a conversion rate thing. And look at the numbers, 2%, 3%, maybe 4%. 
So in the juicing example, that was a 5% thing, and that was sufficiently rare that even being 95% sure was literally flipping a coin. And this is even rarer. This is 2 to 3%. Two to 3 in fact, a lot of conversion rates are stuff like 1, 2, 3%, right? So 95 flipping a coin at 5%, this is worse. You're going to need 99%, maybe more, because the thing you're looking at, like a conversion rate, is rare. And that's fundamentally why this, this is, didn't work out. Now, the reason they even did this test, because this is a weird thing to do in the first place, isn't it? Like, who does that? Um, is because for a year, they had been doing all these A-B tests and picking winners and proceeding, believing that they were learning about messaging and improving their stuff. And they looked back after a year and said, wait a minute, our conversion rates are the same after a year as they were at the beginning of the year, even though we had like, all these successful tests. What the heck? So they started saying, the, test, the testing software itself must be faulty. And so to test the testing software, they ran this test and still just concluded that the testing software was faulty. <laughs> it's not. And as proof, they let the test continue to run. Oh, and, and I'll, I'll show you, well, I'll show you that in a second. I'll show you the, the, the test as it ran to show proof. But first, I want to show you how to do this correctly, since 85% is not enough. So I wrote a blog post about this years ago, um, in which there was a hamster who was choosing, we were seeing whether the hamster likes organic or non-organic food better. And it was the same thing, like, you know, he chose one more than the other, but really, was it statistically significant? So you can get to this post, I, put, I made it easy, you can go to bit.ly.com and then AB Hamster, and you can get the details and the formula and stuff. So I'll show you the formula right now, because I made a super duper simple formula that's still statistically accurate, and it's in the bottom of the post if you care about such things. And so we'll run it real quick, just to show you how simple this is, and therefore why you have zero excuse not to use this, okay? So first you compute the total number of conversions that happen, which in this case there is 700 and change and 600 and change, so on, on the A and B test, so that's easy. And then you compute half the difference between those. Also very easy, right? 37 is half the difference, dif difference between them. And then, this is it. See how simple it is? If D squared is bigger than N, it's statistically significant at 96%, by the way. That makes the math really easy. That's why I picked it. And so in this case, it isn't. And so it's not significant, and that's it. And if you just run the test, if they had just run the test, which I did, actually, when they called, called me down into the office, we did run the test. And I said, see, it's not significant. That's why it's, it's cool. But um, they didn't believe me, so they continued running the test. And, and sure enough, of course, after another month of running this test, eventually they converged, as they should, because there isn't a difference. But meanwhile, they wasted a month because they, they wouldn't believe the hamster test. And actually, even the hamster test may not be good enough for something with low, uh, with something so rare like this. You may want d squared to be a little bit bigger than n, or run your own statistics and sort of do it more properly. But as a counterexample, um, there's another company in town called Other Inbox, and they did use the hamster test uh, the whole time because they read the article, and so. This is, uh, this is literally all the data for something like a year or two, it's a year and a half uh, of them doing an A-B split test on a certain conversion page for them. And the blue line is the A test, or the normal um, sort of current known good test. And the orange one are their B tests. And actually, it's interesting already because look at how much variation, natural variation there is in just the normal test, the normal blue known good. It's a lot, right? In fact, it's more than a lot of the variation in the B, which is, again, the same point yet again. And there were all these points along the way where they might have thought that um, 
the B1, but because they were using real uh, testing, the statistics testing, they knew that it had not won, and so they knew they weren't learning, and they knew they weren't improving, and that they should keep trying uh, different things, maybe even radically different things, in order to achieve a big difference. And they did, as you can see, they had this one huge increase where they, incre they increased the conversions by 50%. And they would not probably have found that had they thought they were making incremental progress along the way. And by the way, just a sidebar, like it's fun, like look at that. It, it's a landing page with a 60% conversion rate. That is incredibly badass. <laughs> so, you wanna, so here's what it looks like. I'll let you draw your own conclusions about whether you like that or how, why it works. I'm not going to make a big point about landing pages. I just thought that was interesting. So first of all, you've got to trust real statistics, not just say 85%. That's what the tool said. It sounds good. Also, especially when you're a small company, you need to seek very large outcomes from any optimization you do. Because little subtle things like a 10% increase in whatever, you literally can't measure them. There's not enough. Look, they had 24,000 data points, and they still couldn't measure uh, a, a difference like that. And if you have fewer data points, obviously you can, you, you can see even smaller, you, you can't see smaller differences either. And besides, if you're smaller, who cares if you have a 10% increase? Like if you're only getting one or two signups a day, and that goes up 15%, how would you know, really? And does it change anything? Can you quit your day job now, right? It doesn't fundamentally help anyway. The thing, the sm when you're small, or as the size of the company or the stage of the company is, is smaller and earlier, the only valuable thing is big changes, double the conversion rate, three times as much traffic in the first place for you to go optimize. Not only because you can't tell the difference in the A-B test uh, uh, in something more subtle, but also because that's the only thing that's going to change your life at the company. And it's not until you get really big, like where you know, you're going after subtle things. So you know, don't get too excited when 37 Signal says, well, we spitballed some headlines and we got a 15% lift and whatever. That is fine eventually when you have millions uh, of people going to the site and that kind of stuff makes an impact in the business and is measurable. But at first, I would shy away from all that and go for big stuff. However, even knowing all that and applying all of that correctly, you're still going to have, uh, it's still not going to work right, and I'll show you exactly why. Speaking of, big companies with tons of data that are able to look at subtle things. How about Google? They have maybe some of the biggest data that there exists. And does everyone remember 41 Shades of Blue controversy? Some people do. So what happened here is there's this designer named Doug Bowman, and he was Google's chief designer, or maybe he was chief design architect, or whatever kind of title means that you get to do the design work for Google, which is pretty sweet, actually, a sweet gig. And he designed things like Gmail, at least the original Gmail. And uh, in doing Gmail, um, his boss, who you've also probably heard of, Marissa Mayer, she said, um, oh, you know what we need to do is get more people to click those ads in the corner, because who here clicks ads while they're in Gmail? Yeah, I've never met anyone who did, ever. So I'm not sure. So I guess that's why they wanted to, people to click more. It's certainly a lot of page views, right? So uh, that makes sense, I suppose. So they said, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll test 41 different shades of blue for the link color for those ads and see if we can get people to click more. So let's see which shade of blue causes them to click. And Doug said, oh, okay, and he quit. And the reason he quit, <laughs> <laughs> the reason he quit chief designer at Google 
is he said, um, this, I get it, you guys are data-driven and all that, and I'm okay with, with results-driven design, but I'm a designer, and there's much more important things about design, much more effective things than trying to twiddle the color there, even if the goal is to get more clicks. And I can't and I won't operate in a company that is so driven this way. Um, so good for him. Then he left and he went to Twitter, and if you know new Twitter, the new Twitter face, that's Doug Bowman too, um, where he's not driven that way. So I talked to Doug about this, and I said, hey Doug, I got something really cool to tell you. Um, you were right, but not just because you're an artist and you get, to, you, know, you get to say things like that, and it's cool. You're actually right mathematically too. He was totally uninterested in this argument. He's like, I don't care. <laughs> but to be fair, he's probably gotten so much crap and stuff about this, he's probably sick of talking about it anyway. But I wanna show you guys why mathematically Google was wrong. Uh, because as you'll see, this is, again, directly impacts you when you guys run A-B tests and you need to avoid this problem, just like the other one. So suppose you did the the, just the test of two shades of blue, and indeed, one was the winner, and indeed, with a at a 95% confidence level, which just means we're 95% sure this is a real result and not a false positive. So there's only a 5% chance that was a false positive. That's pretty good. We probably declare one the winner, and rightly so. Okay. But if I ran another test, so that one against this one, and then another test, so I have two tests, either one could have a false positive, right? So the chance of a false positive goes up, now it's 9%. And if I run 10 of these, how many false positives might I, I have all these chances, 5% chances of getting a false positive, and there's a 40% chance that I get a false positive. And if with 41 shades of blue, it is almost certain that one of them will show with statistical significance of 95%, almost certain that it'll have a false positive, which is exactly what happened. There was a result. So, I mean, I don't know if it was a false positive, but probably. So, this is always true whenever you have run a lot of tests. Of course, there's always error and so on. So not only just the, the false positives within one test, which is what we just covered, but in a series of tests, of course, you're adding them up too. And the reason, this, the reason I've told you all of this is because what is an A-B test program at your business other than test this one, no, it wasn't significant. How about this headline? No, it didn't work. How about this headline? And then on the seventh one, you're like, we found one. Except how do you know, if it's not, how do you know it's not 41 shades of blue? How do you know it's not the same effect? How do you know you found one? Especially because usually you're just spitballing headlines, right? Well, let's, let's use this word. Let's use that word. Let's be more intentional. Let's use an exclamation point. Let's make it right aligned. And then one works. And you're like, shoot, I, I don't even know, and what's the typical thing? I don't know why the headline worked, but it does. Even those, even those awesome 37 signals things often say we're not really sure exactly why. Maybe in retrospect we come up with some theory, but I mean, we don't really know why, but it's amazing, so you should do it, right? So this, the, the fix for this is uh, it actually does something else for you too. So not only is this a mathematical fix, but it actually makes your A-B testing program more valuable to you anyway. I'll explain how. But the idea is that you're going to form theories about why you're doing this particular test instead of spitballing crap. And the fact that you're forming a theory actually fixes the whole thing, and I'm going to show you why. Because again, there's also um, some more valuable things that come out of here than just the, the math. So let me give you some very concrete examples. One of them is, I think that at this point, when the customer gets to the pricing page, they're ready for a hard sell. I should change the headline, for example, to say, buy now, and not, look at all our great pricing plans that you can pick from, right? 
or I want to funnel them in to, a, uh, to do an action like a button and re maybe remove a sidebar because I want to focus them. That's an example of making theory and other stuff. Um, maybe I think people who come from this traffic source would be interested in seeing X next. People who uh, have just searched for uh, security might want to see a landing page that talks about, that has a testimonial from a customer about security or, some, or a big list of stuff that we do about security. Or I think people from the UK would like a landing page where we use too many vowels in the word color, or something like that. Like what, depending on where they are or why, or the channel, maybe they'd like to see something. That's a theory. That person, I think, wants to see something next. Another theory would be, um, I think at this point, the person would love to chat with a human. And again, see, this is, that's a tricky one, right? On the home page, if, if a chat pops right up immediately, is that good or bad? It might piss people off, but it might engage more people. I mean, this is, that's a good question, or maybe not on the home page, but this one. These are all interesting theories, but not to spitball, right? But to say, I think that once they're on the pricing page, maybe then they're ready to talk to a friendly person who might gently encourage them to proceed because they made it to the pricing page. You know, there's a theory. Here's another theory that we did at, at my company, WP Engine, so I can tell you some of the results of this one. And this one's a really common one. We think people will want to watch a movie on the homepage instead of just reading text. And the ones who do will be more engaged and will understand our value proposition, our benefits better, and therefore are more likely to buy. And certainly more likely to look at lots of other pages and get more involved in our website. Good theory, right? So in this particular, I'll just get a little deeper on that one since we did it. So we put a video and we A-B tested having a video and almost no one watched the video and those who did did not buy more frequently. So then we thought, well, we gotta get more people to look at the video. So we put a big play button on it and that helped. And then they did watch the video more and still the people who watched the video were no more likely to, uh, to buy. But we did see that they, were more, they, they spent more time on the website. Except when we got statistics, uh, uh, data about how long they watched the movie, and the extra time they spent on the site was exactly the amount of time to watch the movie. So they did technically, I suppose, stick around to watch the movie, but it didn't influence anything else interesting afterwards. And we tried other variations and whatnot, and we never got it to work, and that doesn't mean it could never work, but probably it, what it does is have, uh, give us counter evidence to this idea that a movie will help people buy in our very particular case, right? But this thing about the theory, here's why it's so powerful. Because first I formed the theory about people who watch a video are more uh, uh, interested or they know something they didn't know before or they're, they're more interested in buying all this stuff. Since that's invalid, what else does that mean? Are there assumptions we've been making around people's engagement or not? And what they might want to see on other pages and what gets them to buy and what's important about us. Because I had a theory and we weren't just spitballing like video or not video, it allows me to think more deeply and have other ideas about what might in fact be something that's better for the homepage. By the way, we did come up with some uh, different language for the homepage with other theories about what people might want to see. And we got the bounce rate of the homepage down to only 20% even through AdWords, which is pretty cool. In other words, because we had a theory, we knew we were invalidating something so we knew to come up with other theories. Now, alternately, on the pricing page, often it is a, a good time to start funneling people in. So suppose you had that theory and you did funnel people with stronger headline language, you know, buy now. And suppose it worked. Suppose, now how, again, how do you know it's not 41 shades of blue? Well, you don't quite know it's not yet, 
But since you've started to validate a theory, you can just go further with that theory. Well, if they want to be squeezed, let's continue to squeeze them. And if you're right about the theory, then very rapidly you can make a lot of additional progress on that pricing page because you're taking a theory all the way in. And that's way more valuable than spitballing where you haven't learned anything. In Lean Startup, all they talk about is learning. Well, here's exactly what that means in practice in a very real way. You haven't learned anything by spitballing, but now you have, so you can put it into practice. And on the other hand, if it turns out to be anomalous, you'll also find out, because you'll try to do all this stuff and it won't work. So that's how it gets around the math, but also is, is a much more, valuable, uh, much more valuable process for you to do anyway. Um, one more slight example of the same thing is in Google Analytics. Another thing we do, we all collectively do, is we log into Google Analytics and we start making charts. And if people come from Bulgaria seem to like this page, and I don't know why, but that's kind of cool. Maybe, you know, what do you do? Maybe we should advertise in Bulgaria or something. And uh, people who, I don't know, do this, they, they spend a lot more time on the site, which might mean they're interested or it might mean they're confused and can't find the information they want. Like, who knows what the hell it means? But we see all this stuff and we start, we start acting on it, right? And so, the thing to notice is that that is exactly the same thing yet again as the 41 shades of blue thing, where you're taking tons of data and just sort of mixing and matching. And in that sense, you will find things that are significant in one sense, but they're spitballed and made up in another sense. And so that's okay. You just treat uh, that kind of exploration as idea generators, theory generators, and not as facts. So hopefully, many of the things are in fact valuable and true. And you'll find out because you'll actually make a theory out of them and then go validate those theories through testing. And so it's good as a generator, but bad if, if you see those things as just truth. Okay, so all that stuff we just talked about is all kind of tactics and specific things you do around optimizing numbers and looking at numbers, good. But perhaps an even more important question is, and which things should I be looking at? What is the most important thing for me, my company to focus on? Should I, uh, for example, uh, focus on optimizing the growth rate as high as possible? Or what if cancellations increase too? Is that okay? Or, or should, I, should I focus on cancellations instead? Because that implies my, my company is also delivering a good product and a good service if they stick around. And so that's valuable. Or maybe other things, conversion rates and so on. How do I know for my whole company or a particular project inside my company, I can't, how do I decide which variables I'm going to spend my time and effort trying to measure and optimize and basically obsess over? Because obviously I can't uh, optimize 17 variables at once. How do I pick which ones are actually important? So I want to give you uh, my technique that we've used, again, at WP Engine for pretty much everything that we do, from the entire you know, whole view of the company all the way down to specific projects. I'm going to tell you exactly what we do, and we're going to workshop that thing against a very particular example so you can see it um, actually it work. So the what's, the what's important thing that we're going to do is an affiliate program for a SaaS business. And I imagine a lot of companies here are that, and some of you could potentially use an affiliate program. So this might even be very directly relevant to everyone. But if not, the, the process very clearly moves uh, or is, can be applied anywhere. So first, this is the sort of a starting assumptions we're going to make about the affiliate program. We expect, obviously, obviously, since the program hasn't started yet, we're sort of making this up, but we're just trying to understand how the program works. So it's okay if these numbers are made up, as long as they're in the ballpark. So we'll assume we, have to, we make 20 sales a month through the affiliate program. So this is, suppose, a small company and a small affiliate program. That's cool. And we pay $100 per affiliate 
uh, to an affiliate when someone signs up. And that person who signed up, on average, has signed up for, let's say, a plan that's $20 a month. So each of those signups represents $20 in new recurring revenue. <clears throat> so one thing you can see right away, of course, is because I pay out $100 in the first month and I, have to, and I only get $20 a month back, it's going to take me five months just to make up for the 100 bucks. You, it's either four or five months, depending on when you charge that first month, too, right? Um, I think that's a brain teaser for some interview questions, right? But one month, you know. All right. So, <laughs> okay, so that's our, that's our starting thing. So the first thing that I do is I make a very, very simple spreadsheet. You could call this a model or whatever, but it's super duper duper simple, okay? It's just, well, this is how many uh, signups it's going to be, so this is what I'm paid, so this is how much new monthly recurring revenue I got in that month, and then here's the running total of all the recurring revenue I've gotten, you know, that I've built up so far in that month, and so on and so forth. Super simple, okay? And so, of course, you can graph some of this stuff. And so here's me graphing exactly the model we just set on the first slide, where you can see we're paying two grand a month every month because it's 20 signups <clears throat> times $100 each. And the revenue starts lower because I'm only getting the $20 a month. And then over time, the revenue builds as those customers um, continue to add on. And then there's that total cash used. So uh, again, that's just adding those two together, right? So um, or at least subtracting the payouts from the revenue, right? So I'm losing money at first, and then it turns around at some point. And I can see, and this is just a useful point of reference, that uh, the point where it turns around is about four months in. That's how, it's, uh, how long it's going to take roughly for me to start actually making money on this damn thing. Um, and it's, I'm going to be four grand in the hole when that happens, because I've paid out so much and haven't made it back yet. So that's kind of interesting, especially if you're a very small company. Like, it's good to know this is actually going to cost some kind of money, and maybe I should have that in my pocket before I begin. OK. But supposing this works, I'm not going to want, I'm going to want to get more affiliates. And it's not out of the question that maybe I could grow it at 15% a month, the number of affiliates. Right? The first month is 20, next month is 23, next month 26. That's not crazy. So what happens if we add 15% a month growth in affiliate count? So it just takes longer to catch up because I'm, I'm get, spending more money and faster. And in particular, it's going to cost me six grand now and take six months uh, to catch up. But already we are seeing an interesting effect, and this is why this is so helpful, because I only added a 15% growth, and yet there was a 50% increase in how much it cost me and how long it takes to get it back, how long I have to ride that money. In other words, a, a, something of a small change in growth, just adding like three or six more affiliates a, a month, which is really not that much, has, has you know, at least to me, kind of surprisingly changed uh, the, the parameters of this. But so far, nothing, uh, nothing outrageous. So um, this model is wrong, however, because this is assumes we never, ever lose customers, and that's just not true. And furthermore, the customers we get from affiliate marketing are often lower quality and have a higher cancellation rate than normal customers. So just suppose, for the sake of argument, that we experience a 10% cancellation rate, that is 10% per month cancellation rate. So now what does it look like? Oh, oh. <laughs> We're dead. Like, we never make money, ever, because even a 10% cancellation rate is enough to kill the whole project and never make money. OK, so now we've got a metric that is clearly important. Now we've got like, our first clear thing of like, ooh, this is something I need to track. I probably need to optimize. And you start running through more things in your head like, OK, 
I probably need to track it per affiliate, because surely some affiliates are good, and some will be crap, and I'll want to kill the crappy ones because they're clearly not profitable. So like, already you're starting to go, OK, I know I'm going to use this to build stuff. We, we have a important metric. So let's continue. So again, like this is the name of all this stuff is is like sensitivity analysis and stuff like that. And there's like models and tools you could potentially use, but you don't need to. You can just make a spreadsheet and just play with these numbers and see what happens, just like this. So uh, next thing we'll do is this: we'll keep all this, the growth and the cancellation rate. We'll keep it. But now we say, you know, twenty dollars a month per customer. That's not a lot. And I bet there's some things we can do to increase the amount of money we make per customer. All kinds of things. Um, you know, one of the most common things that any small business probably hears from an, an, an advisor or mentor is, raise your prices. Right, Patrick? Yes. <laughs> yes. Raise your prices. Double them or something. There was a company I was talking to uh, in, at Capital Factory where we office in Austin, which is sort of a, a combination of like co-working and acceleration and all kinds of interesting things. And I was talking to a company there, and I, I forget what their prices were. I think it was $16 uh, to do it. And I said, that's really small. Try doubling your prices and see what happens. Of course, they hemmed and hawed and didn't do it for a couple of weeks. But finally, they did it. They just doubled their prices. So they came back in a week, and I said, so what happened? They're like, well, we doubled our prices, and the signups were absolutely unchanged. No one said a word. Nothing changed. We just doubled our prices. I said, no one complained. Like, nobody complained. Like, everything's just exactly as it was before, except for making twice as much money and probably more on, uh, in profit, right? Because it all just goes right to profit, obviously. I said, great, so what are you going to do next? And they're like, I don't know. This is really cool. Maybe we're going to buy some AdWords with that money? <laughs> no. <laughs> right? <laughs> you just said. No one complained yet. So d double your prices again, right? <laughs> do that until somebody complains about it, of course. Or you know, the signups go down a little or make some tears or something, right? OK, well, so the point is. Maybe you can just increase prices. Maybe you could have different tiers. Maybe you could reorganize what the tiers even are. Maybe you could incentivize the affiliates and pay them maybe a little extra or somehow, or give them a coupon or somehow incentivize them to get people to sign up for a bigger tier. Lots and lots of ways. But the point is, let's suppose you could add $10 of monthly recurring revenue um, just by various techniques, optimizations and testing and you know, these things. If you focused on that, perhaps you could raise the average by $10. So on the one hand, that's a that's, that is a 50% price increase, I, I suppose, from $20. But $10, again, still not out of the question that, that you couldn't do that with some work. By the way, at, um, at, uh, during SmartBear, over four years or so, our prices went from $19.95 to $1,300 through a series of price increases. And of course, we added features and stuff. It wasn't for nothing. But still, the point is like you can, you know, it's not crazy at all to start marching it up. At WordPress Engine, also, um, in January, we changed our prices um, both in uh, what was in the tiers and the costs of the tiers, and, you know, the, lots of things that, of course, we did through customer development. We figured out what, the, you know, what we wanted to do there. And uh, we doubled, we doubled the average amount of money that a person gave us. And, and signups went up. <laughs> So that was especially nice. And we did literally two months of customer development ahead of that to try to understand what we were going to do. So it's not for nothing. But still, still the point is, I bet you this company can get $10 a month more monthly recurring revenue. So suppose they do, and all this stays the same, then what happens? And what's amazing is we're right back to where we started. <laughs> You're only 4K in the hole. It only takes about four months to start paying it back. More monthly recurring revenue, even a little bit more, fixes everything. It's awesome. Like, even if the big cancels and everything. 
you can't do better, <laughs> pretty much. So we have a new winner for most important metric, right? Priority number one metric is get people to pay more per month, which, again, like that in itself doesn't sound terribly surprising. Maybe it's terribly surprising just how insane it is and how more important it is than, for example, maybe even doubling the number of people. How much more important is it than cancellations? These things might be surprising. And it might be different with different numbers, with your numbers, right? And different projects, it might be different which thing is most important, right? Um, for example, at our scale at WP Engine, which is much bigger scale than this, obviously, our cancellation rate is much, much more important than it suggests here. And a change in 0.1% in monthly cancellations for us, because we have so many customers, has a material impact in the company. Like, we literally can hire a couple more people on 0.1% changes in cancellation rate. That's crazy. So that's what I mean by, like, it's, it's obvious, except also there are... It's, it's not necessarily obvious, and yet the model doesn't have to be so complicated either. Um, so we have a new winner for most important things. So now we get all uh, cocky and we're like, sweet. Now that I have this all dialed in, because also the, uh, you know, the, nu the numbers themselves are bigger, right? Also, I'm making more money overall here, so that's cool. So you get cocky and you're like, I've got to collect affiliates now. Like, I've got to just throw gas on this fire. So you think, so affiliates, of course, are, giving, are given offers all the time, and the bigger ones are given bigger offers. So let's pay them $150 a month, or dollars a, a sign-up instead of 100 since you know, we're so much better at monetizing these guys. So you increase that by 50% also, and you're back to dead again, it turns out. 150, for some reason, going between 100 and 150 just blows the model apart again. And that, to me, again, so kind of surprising that it'd be that sensitive to a one-time cost. But there you go. So here's how I, um, here's how I like, take all of that information, how I synthesize it into. So here's what we're going to do. So first of all, it was clear that monthly recurring revenue, number one thing, and also because there's no way that this is only valuable for the affiliate program. I mean, surely this just makes my whole company a lot more money. So that's going to be my number one priority, clearly. The second thing is I have to be careful about those payouts, especially because it's hard to reduce payouts to affiliates once they're set up, right? No one wants to see that go down. So I have to be careful to, you know, th there's, there's some line between 100 and 150 bucks, but I, I don't even want to be close to that line, and, and, and because it's, again, because it's hard to change. And that's another thing. Uh, I, not every metric is one where you're tracking it and optimizing it continuously. With the pricing, perhaps, indeed, because there's so much to be gained there, and it's very possible to do that continuously. But with payouts, it's not really something that you're constantly optimizing and changing by a dollar and looking for 15% something or other, is it? It's something I think of as like a threshold. It's important that you track it. It's important what the number is. But really, what, you're, what you think is, is, I'm going to set that thing and watch it, make sure it doesn't go out of the box. And otherwise, I'm going to try to improve my business and optimize those other metrics and so on. So um, an example, actually, for. WP Engine is, um, in, in, in our industry, which is uh, like hosting and platforms like Heroku and that kind of stuff, um, there is not a single person I've ever talked to in this industry who has a cancellation rate under 2%. Seems like a magical floor of just people generally churning their projects and whatever right, stuff. Um, okay, so if our cancellation rate is 2.2%, I know there's not much more room there. And I, I suppose I could go try to optimize it a lot, but it's way better if we can increase our growth rate instead. But if that cancellation rate comes out of a certain box, like 2.5%, then all of a sudden it does become destructive, and it's not worth extra growth if I have a cancellation rate like that. 
So I think, I think of cancellation rate, again, for, for us, again, as a threshold, just like the, the payouts, where as long as it stays in a box, I'm not, I'm not actively trying to optimize the living crap out of it. But if it came out of the box, then suddenly it would become more important. So a threshold. So threshold. And then uh, in the, back to the affiliate program, the cancellations were important. Let's not forget. So that would be my number two thing I, I watch. Number one is the money, is the income. But then the number two is cancellations. I do still care. I am going to do that. And then sort of a meta observation about this, that as the, if I grow the affiliate program faster, whatever's happening gets exacerbated. The bad gets exacerbated, and so does the good. And that's fine, but that's just good to know. And therefore, I'm going to make sure that I start small and get these numbers right and see that they're working right before I grow big, because otherwise I know I might blow myself away. And this is one of these areas where if you're funded, perhaps you can afford to go right away to blow it away anyway. And if we lose money on that, that's fine, because we'll trade that for the idea that maybe if it is successful, we'll be faster and, and, and you know, get there quicker and so forth. That might be a good trade if you have money to spend. And of course, if you don't have money to spend, it's a terrible trade. And you want to intentionally start small before you go. Um, one more uh, like example of this I'll throw out there. Um, I won't show you all the charts and stuff, because that, that's just kind of tedious. But just to show you like another area where this works, uh, at WP Engine, we have a big support staff. In fact, more than half of our 30 employees are in uh, support. And so um, it's an interesting question how to optimize or otherwise uh, make a support more efficient, because obviously, if that's where all the people are, people are the most expensive thing. And so you, know, you, you want to not make that bigger if you can help it. So we model it like crazy. We look at stuff like the number of tickets that a new customer creates in their first 30 days, because that's much higher than what a regular customer creates. So we track both those separately. And then we track how many tickets a month does a, can a support rep do and still have plenty of time to do a good job and not be underwater and be able to you know, go on vacation or get sick or something and all that sort of thing. And when, did the, when does it break? Un unfortunately, earlier this year, um, we didn't have enough people, and we did break. <laughs> and so we kind of know where, kind of where that threshold is. So unfortunately, we know. Um, so, but, but then, so that you can make this model. Well, then, now we know how many people we sort of need in the hiring plan, which is another thing. We hire a couple of people a month. So it's really important to know, like, is that one or two or three or so? Like, what is it? Because we need to hire ahead of that. Otherwise, you can get behind by six or even 10 people real fast in just a couple of months if we don't know that very well. So in the scaling phase, often you need these models and things so that you don't get behind, that you don't need that stuff early on. But uh, again, like the, so the question is, what should we optimize or what should we be concerned with? So kind of the obvious one is, how many tickets a month does a person do? Because if it more, then obviously we need fewer people. That's pretty obvious. But what's interesting is when you, when you twiddle that number and you say, like, well, let's suppose they can do 50 or you know, tickets more a month or something, a couple more a day. It, it barely changes the hiring plan. You still need to hire about one or two people a month. It's, it basically does not materially impact stuff, which is cool, because it means um, we, we shouldn't, and besides the fact that, you, that we shouldn't go to someone and say, like, hey, maybe you can knock off two more tickets before you take off today, huh? Like, besides that being a crappy <laughs> work environment, it also, it turns out, isn't actually useful to the business to do. But I thought it would have been. It seems, stands to reason it would have been. It turns out that the number of tickets that our existing customers produce per month is much more interesting. And the hiring plan does change if that number is like 0.5 or 1 ticket a month per customer. A hiring plan changes quite a lot. And, and it even changes more on the growth rate of the company because so many uh, you know, uh, uh, new customers produce so many new tickets. Um, 
that too is more important than how many tickets per day a human being does. And that leads to totally different thoughts around like, oh, well, if I want to reduce tickets from new customers, maybe I have an, a knowledge base that we can send them to, and that'll help tickets, a certain ticket close faster and also hopefully educate them to go back there next time, sometimes. Uh, you know. In other words, it, it, it produces totally different ideas for what we should be doing as opposed to you know, flogging people and getting them to close more tickets in a day, which we should not do. Um, and fortunately for, I think, all of us, because again, that's a, that would be a crappy culture anyway. So again, high level strategy is find just one or two key metrics that you're actually going to optimize and obsess over. Maybe a few more that are thresholds, right? a few more that you're going to watch but not obsess over, just keep in the box. You're going to use something like a simple Excel model and playing with the numbers to determine what they should be. And then the final thing we, I didn't say before is that as you find the real data, as you actually run the affiliate program or whatever, of course you want to put that data back into the model and rethink that model. Uh, I rethink our model, uh, our projections at WordPress Engine literally every single month. We put in the new numbers and is it still trending the right way? Did it go somewhere else? You know, do we think that's sustainable and so forth? Um, and so, of course, putting real data back in the model is infinitely better than whatever you had in the model in the first place and lets you continue to do the same analysis and make sure that you're still focusing on the, the thing that is in, indeed the most important thing. And then on the tactics, it's not true that just because it may be a B beat A, that it is just as well that we take it. It's not true. It's more important to actually learn something and validate theories and so forth. So test the theories and not just spitballing stuff. Don't trust the tool necessarily that says 85%, or if it is 85%, that's fine, but that, now you know that that may not be enough and you have some, some kind of mental model about that. And then again, especially when you're small, but even with data sets of 24,000, as we saw, and even data sets that we have, which are big, um, you're, always wanting to see, you're always trying to seek large results. And even a test that maybe is showing a 5% difference, well, who even cares? It's probably wrong, <laughs> it's probably not true, and it probably doesn't matter anyway. So just, just uh, not useful to, to seek little things. And mostly, the next time that you see something in a tool or read something online or someone tells you some kind of stuff that you've just heard regurgitated by a bunch of people who probably haven't really run a company and probably don't know much about statistics, you'll ignore that <laughs> and know that you're doing the right thing. Thanks.